Hey folks, you're very welcome back to the Meditations on Movement podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at a concept, a Japanese concept, a way of living called Ikigai. If you've ever heard of it, um, it is certainly a very interesting way of looking at life is one way to think of it. Um, But what I'm going to do here in this episode is I'm going to base a lot of it off of a book that I've read uh, on the topic. And obviously, Ikigai itself, the book on Ikigai, touches on a lot of different areas that I am certainly not going to get an opportunity to discuss in a great amount of detail in this podcast. But I think uh, a lot of the uh, principles from it can be pulled um, and I'm going to pull from what is like sort of my knowledge and expertise on those areas to be able to delve into those a little bit more so I'd certainly advise after listening to this podcast to certainly go and read the book because it's going to have lots of sort of anecdotes and other bits in there uh, that I won't get a, an opportunity to to discuss and there's probably going to be some things obviously relevant to what I discuss in this podcast that are not going to be in the book itself. Uh, but the specific book that I have pulled a lot from, some some graphics, some quotes and stuff like that, uh, is a book uh, with the title Ikigai, so I-K-I-G-A-I. Um, the subtitle is The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life by uh, two authors, Hector Garcia and Francesc Morales, okay? So to get straight into it, what we'll do is we'll look at what this uh, concept actually is, what it means, um, and then look at it in terms of like how we would live by this concept in some way. So the basic idea of this is Ikigai translates directly, um, or the best translation of it, is the happiness of always being busy. Now, not to say that that's a bad translation, there's there's multiple ways of sort of looking at it, but that's probably the one of the better ways to, to, one of the best ways to think of it. And that idea of being busy, don't get it confused with, with thinking that like you need to be running around like a, like a headless chicken. There's another way of kind of keeping yourself busy or thinking of what is busyness. I think that that direct translation can be, uh, certainly misunderstood. Um, but a better way to think of it in my eyes is it's a concept of finding happiness, purpose, fulfillment in your life um, and it leads into many different areas you know the the social aspect of it the the career um, your relationship with your body all of these different things are considered within this uh, this concept of ikigai okay um, the thing that I want to start off with is a look at a diagram or a graphic and I'll Hopefully put it up along with this, but I'll do my best considering a lot of people will be listening. I'll do my best to describe this diagram because uh, for me, this diagram really solidifies this idea of Ikigai and shows how it really is an intersection of all of these different things. Okay, so if you've ever seen a, a Venn diagram before, a Venn diagram with sort of circles and those circles cross over into each other, you're going to have four different circles. So imagine like a cross shape where you've got one on top, one on bottom, and then one to the right and left. Um, you can you can think then, so there's going to be uh, one thing in the, in each solo circle, so four different uh, bits that are solo, and then there's going to be four bits where, you know, one of, uh, or two of the, the circles will, will cross over, and then right bang smack in the middle um, of all of those different circles uh, leading to Ikigai, okay? So in one of those circles, you've got 
what you love. And you can think about this as we kind of go through. You can sort of think to yourself, okay, well, what are the things in your life that you love? And it's a hard question to confront or contend with in some way. And sit there and think, like, what are the things that you actually, truly, honestly love in your life? Another thing then to consider is what does the world need, all right? Um, this is obviously filtered through sort of your lens in some way, but you're, if you think from a, a more general perspective, what do you think the world needs, okay? So that's two of those four that we're talking about. Remember, they're completely separate. Um, and then another one is what you can be paid for. So you've just got to think in some way, what are you actually going to receive uh, financial uh, incentives for in terms of what you could potentially do, all right? Just think about that in, in that very broad sense, like what are the things that you can be paid for, all right? And then the other, the fourth um, of these sort of four individual Venn diagrams is what you are good at, okay? Um, in some way different to the things that we've just discussed there, obviously. So between what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, you then also have to think of what you're good at. So of all the things that you do, um, or that you could potentially do in the future. What are you good at? What would you? What would you? What would you argue you're good at? Okay. So now we have those four individual separate things, or as part of the Venn diagram, we now look at the intersection between those. So on the top we've got what you love. On the bottom we've got what you can be paid for. To the right and left, and on the right hand side you've got what the world needs, and on the left hand side you've got what you're good at. Okay. The intersection between what you love and what the world needs can be considered your mission. Okay, and I think to me this this really um, this comes from that idea of like what you what you love obviously, and then what the world needs. There's understandably something that you're willing to really uh, drive for to to lay out a plan and to really go for um, is one way to think of it. The intersection then between what the world needs and what you can be paid for would be considered your vocation. And I want to then point, before I kind of delve into that in, in a little bit more detail, I want to discuss one of the other intersections, which is what you're good at and what you can be paid for, which is your profession. So those two in some way seem very similar. The way I would argue it is your profession is more directly related to what you're doing specifically, whereas your vocation can sort of cover more of a broad thing, you know, um, less to do with the specifics of your job, your profession, uh, your vocation may be... Um, more to do with things on a more grand scale of, of like what you could potentially do, okay? And then fourth little intersection between what you love and what you're good at is your passion. And you can understand how love, the, the idea of what you love really um, pulls from that idea of like a passion and a mission. Um, what you can be paid for pulls from this idea of a profession and a vocation. What you're good at stems into like your you, what would be considered your passion and your profession, and then what the world needs would would really go between you know mission and vocation when you think about it from the perspective of what you can be paid for or what you love. And now that we've kind of covered all of those things, you can understand how Ikigai really sits in the center of all that. You know what are the things that we would do that we that we really love that we can be paid for, and um, that we we are actually good at so that we're going to get a sense of fulfillment and contentment at the end of the day. Um, and then what does the world need? We have to understand what is our relationship in terms of a community, you know, uh, of, of people around us. How are we contributing to all of the people around us and how do we have those sort of social bonds? 
So really, that's a, a, a great way to think of it, uh, to kind of start us off. I, I think it's a fantastic diagram. It's, it's something I sort of pull back to is, you know, potentially where am I looking at things to, uh, to black and white or two in one part of the diagram where I'm only really considering things from a, a profession perspective. I'm losing out on the idea of like, you know, what is, what, what is my mission? What are the things that I love? I'm kind of forgetting that aspect of, of, of what I'm doing with my life. Um, so to, to pull from the book again, uh, one of the areas or one of the, the ways the book tackles this concept of Ikigai, it's really choosing Ikigai as a, as a way of living based on uh, a region of Okinawa in Japan, one of the islands of Japan, that is considered a blue zone, all right? Blue zones are a very interesting thing. Uh, they're basically areas, there's, there's five of them. Uh, these are areas in the world where people live very, very long and have the most uh, percentage of people that reach 100 years of age. Um, and I think one of the key things as well is it's not that these areas just reach, you know, these really uh, long years. They have multiple people doing it, but they also have, you know, some of the best percentages in terms of health and contentment, fulfillment in life as well, which is, a, which is an interesting thing. And uh, basically Okinawa in Japan is one of them. Sardinia of Italy is one of them. Uh, Loma Linda in California uh, the Nokova Peninsula of Costa Rica and Ikaria of Greece. Hopefully I'm pronouncing all of those right. Um, but basically those are your five blue zones within the world. Um, and basically this is, this is once again a direct quote. Uh, according to scientists who have studied the five blue zones, the key to or the keys to longevity are diet, exercise, finding a purpose in life, an ikigai, um, and forming strong social ties. That is having a broad circle of friends and good family relations. And it's so simple in some way when you look at this stuff on paper, when you just think of those different things, diet, exercise, finding a purpose in life, and strong social ties. You know, if you if you were to really look at those things as sort of key categories within your life that you should be um, devoting a lot of your time and investing in, they're gonna give you stuff back. You know, they're gonna give you uh, a greater sense of purpose, meaning, um, and they're really going to help you live a long and happy life. Um, so it is fascinating that you see those sort of commonalities between the, the major blue zones. And the, it, the, the big thing about this book then is really is comparing uh, Okinawa or looking at Okinawa specifically as one of these blue zones. And some of the key areas that we find we're going to really delve into. So we're going to look at the diet of, of um, Okinawa and some, some, some sort of key points on it. Uh, this the idea of exercise and movement, mindfulness and stress reduction, uh, some things on resilience, uh, social connections and community, all these different things that would sort of relate in some way to, to an icky guy. Um, so what, what about the diet? The diet is very interesting when you look at it on paper. So um, if I think of my, my uh, history with nutrition, uh, it's always been looking at it through the lens of uh, nutrition for activity, you know, uh, either a case where I was trying to fuel my sessions as optimally as possible, sometimes even managing weight, uh, depending on what my goals were at the time, if I was looking to gain muscle mass, if I was doing things for a specific competition. Um, but mostly, a lot of the times, it's all boiled down to this idea of, am I fueling myself in the best way possible? Am I eating a healthy and well-balanced diet? You know, Am I getting lots of fruit and veg? I'm, I'm always asking myself all of these different questions. And that's really, you know, all of the simple things that you've probably been told in terms of diet are what the people of Okinawa actually uh, 
eat on a regular basis. There's a few sort of interesting things that they found. Um, one of the things that they found basically is the calorie consumption that they go through. So in Okinawa, or the some of these blue zones even in general, uh, you find that they actually consume less calories. Uh, so they, they give a general comparison of like 1,700 calories compared to 2,000. Um, so a, a, a little bit below what would be sort of a considered a maintenance level, which is an interesting thing. There's, you know, there's lots of things that we could delve down to into, into in terms of nutrition to be able to say like uh, what seems to be similar to sort of like fasting-like uh, behaviors. Um, but, I, but I find that interesting myself where you know, what? It, what is our relationship to diet where we say, are we supposed to be eating as much as we are eating, especially in Western cultures where we find so much food readily available and we don't really have to do a lot in order to get that food. Um, it really goes to show that potentially we can, I mean, we can understand why diet is such a big thing when it comes to uh, our risk of disease, you know, obesity, all of these different things that are now on a rise. Um, simple strategies or simple things to follow in terms of diet can really make a huge difference in our life and lead us to live these these kind of long and happy lives. And I think it's important to point out with diet as well that it's not just necessarily about, you know, preventing disease and living a long life, but really feeling content and happy. You know, if we're if we're eating a lot of these things, getting lots of nutrients, getting a wide variety of nutrients, we are going to find simple things like our uh, our relationship with our body is going to improve. We're going to feel a lot healthier. We're going to feel more vibrant, full of energy. Um, we, we forget that those things really span out, similar to what I was explaining with the diagram, where just because these are kind of solo things, they will go lean out or they will spread into all of these different areas um, of our life. Um, some other things as well then you can understand like if, if they consume less calories they, they kind of follow what is considered like an 80% rule um, I think one of the one of the things that I'd seen in the book basically is is basically saying that like you do, just don't eat uh, until you uh, like eat pretty much um, until you feel sort of satisfied but not like overly engorged um, I've given this advice before where I've said, sort of said to people like be aware as you're eating I think a lot of the times we can sort of unconsciously consume our food you know we're not really sitting with the food in front of us and uh actually being present in the moment to be able to say okay i'm i'm enjoying this food i'm i'm really focused in on what i'm doing it seems like such a simple thing but how many times are we eating food and we're watching tv or we're distracted doing something or whatever and we suddenly just find that we've eaten to the point that we're actually uncomfortable you know um, so what they follow in a simple way to, to look at it, it's not like they're saying, oh, we're going to consume less calories. It's that they're following this 80% rule where they're eating to 80% fullness, where they just feel, okay, I'm satisfied, but I have a little bit of extra room. All right. Um, they also notice as well that they have a wide variety of foods. And I think obviously it, it, it uh, feeds into the, the culture of the area. You know, it's quite a secluded island and there's not a lot of... Um, you know, it's we take for granted the sort of environment that we have, lots of like readily available foods in, in uh, shops and stuff like that. So we're not growing a lot of these foods ourselves. We're not sharing them or we're not going to markets where we have like really fresh produce that's only uh, produced in our area. I know certainly like um, the, the, it's, it's great that we have lots of variety in, in supermarkets, but 
what are we choosing in those supermarkets are we choosing like lots of vegetables lots of uh like normal grown stuff as opposed to like the mass kind of highly processed produced foods and that's something that you certainly wouldn't see in a lot of their diets they have a wide variety of wholesome nutritious natural foods and um, in their diet so it's it's it really it's it's funny when you think about it it's like of course of course they live long and healthy happy lives when they have a wide variety of of natural normal foods um, and and less processed shit uh another thing that they've once again it's just hilarious that we have to sort of uh, remind ourselves of these things but they eat five servings of fruit and veg a day uh es- there's an estimation of that of more than 30 percent of their daily calories come from vegetables um as a result of that vegetable consumption it's also a diet rich in antioxidants um, so they're getting such a wide variety of vitamins minerals um, all of those different things from from the amount of veg that they're eating, excuse me, on a regular basis. Uh, grains are also a foundation of their diets, which is an interesting one to see. I mean, it would it would differ, say, from an area like Sardinia, which would be uh, mainly kind of like Mediterranean based diet. You'd find lots of oils and stuff like that in there. So I, I wonder if if the grains thing is is a, a huge thing. But like, I have nothing against grains. I think grains are fine. You know, when you're having uh, like a variety of them uh, within your diet is uh, a good balance of, of fats, uh, protein and, and vegetables as well as much natural, naturally occurring kind of foods as well uh, and, and minimal processed stuff. Uh, I think the, the grains thing for some people, I know there's a lot of debate within nutrition as to like grains and, and stuff and, and their role. So I'm, I'm I'm putting out there as obviously something that is relevant because of their diet. It's an it's an observational piece of of information, uh, so keep that in mind. They also rarely eat sugar, and once again, another thing similar to what I was saying there about grains, um, sugar is probably just something that it doesn't really occur um a lot for them in the in their environment. So there's probably a lot of sugar in terms of say a lot of the fruits that they're consuming, but they're rarely eating like the mass amounts of sugar that we would just naturally find in our diet as a result of the amount of processed and convenient stuff uh, that we find in our diets, okay? Um, and another thing to kind of lead into what is the the calorie consumption is smaller portion sizes. And I think this just makes sense. Like it's it's the 80% rule uh, that, they, that they follow where they're just having smaller portion sizes, smaller plates, um, simple, simple and easy way to, to kind of look at things from a diet perspective. So as I said, that was bullet points of the actual diet itself and what I can sort of give from that is they're simple things to follow you know they're all the things that we know we should be uh, doing in terms of our diet it's just for them it's they've created an environment uh, they don't uh, they don't have um, you know they're, they're quite secluded locations so they, they they're lucky in a sense that they don't have uh, a lot of those things available to them but Maybe there is a sense of, you know, if those things were available to them, they wouldn't look to consume those as much as they are because they know themselves that they're they're observing the people around them, the culture that they have, the uh, lifestyle that they have. You know, if they have that conscious thing of, of the 80% rule, they're clearly aware of what their relationship is with food um, and, and bringing in lots of, like, highly processed things. Like, you can imagine if a McDonald's were to set up right next to them, I can't imagine they would, uh, you know, be in there and then suddenly their 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 culture their lifestyle would change massively they probably wouldn't uh go near it all right um another aspect of the 
Okinawa or the, the blue zones is this look at exercise and movement. And it certainly relates back to, to Ikigai as well in terms of finding your purpose is understanding your relationship with your body. Um, you know, obviously I, I have a movement practice myself um, I, I could sit here for hours and talk about the importance of physical activity. I've, I've already talked about it on numerous episodes. Um, but it's always fascinating to me when you look at how being physically active on a regular basis um, having confidence in your body, having freedom to move, how it really relates to your, your happiness, your fulfillment um, in life. You know, if you, if you are very active during the day as a result of your job, um, I'd argue that you're going to be much happier whether, if you are unfortunately uh, desk bound and then sedentary on top of that as well. You know, it's not to say that you can't be uh, desk bound as a result of your work and then not live an active lifestyle. You just certainly have to be aware that you're spending a lot of time uh, very, very sedentary as a result of your profession. And then you've got to counteract that to some degree with increasing your physical activity, having something in there potentially every day. But it's looking at it as a lifestyle thing, not saying like, oh, you know, I, I'm, I should be um punishing myself as a result of of uh not being not being physically active quite regularly or you know not being physically active for the last five ten years whatever it is just make sure that you're not having a negative relationship with uh movement or physical activity in general physical activity can be very rewarding it can be very fun uh, it can be very fulfilling so um please 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 if you're if you're someone who is uh not as physically active at the moment be, be open-minded to a lot of the things that you could potentially be interested in, you could potentially try, because uh, they, they will have this naturally uh, symbiotic relationship with all of these aspects of, of, of diet, of, of stress reduction, of mindfulness, um, of, of finding a purpose of your ikigai. Um, the, uh, the, the thing that they really touch on in the book in some way is this integration of exercise into daily life. Uh, they touch on things like you know yoga, qigong, tai chi. Although they're not specifically related to Okinawa itself, they and and uh, Japanese way of living, you can understand in Eastern cultures it is very uh, interesting to see those things kind of pop up. Those those very similar sort of uh, martial arts, where you know in in a lighter sense um, they are not overly strenuous like you look at maybe tai chi and qigong there's a lot of effort that goes into them don't get me wrong but you can imagine like they're not as strenuous as like a, a crossfit workout or sprinting that kind of thing they're not overly overly exertive they are a very particular style of of movement and as a result it, it, it feeds into maybe the the relationship that people have into their elder years with it because they feel they can continue to do it and um, i think a lot of the times uh in in a lot of uh in western culture or in our culture as a whole, there is this element of you hear people talk about it as like, you know, I have to really, really physically push myself. And then, oh, you know, I wasn't, I'm, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I'm not as fit as I used to be. That suddenly becomes the relationship you have with it, where it's, it's a comparison to a previous version of yourself or even the people around you. You know, it becomes that whole thing of, um, am I, am I, am I meeting a certain standard, um, which can be healthy to a certain degree for sure. Uh, but I think in terms of longevity, we have to find alternate reasons for why we are involved in a, in a movement practice. Uh, there has to be a deeper sense of meaning behind it, I think. And those Eastern traditions of movement certainly have that. There's a lot of emphasis on the, the process, uh, the, the movements themselves, rather than 
necessarily what the movements are giving you. You know, they're a, a, a result of, of, of doing the movements itself, being involved in the process. So that's what I think is that main difference between maybe the, the East and West. You know, you, you can look at and categorize a lot of Western traditional um, forms of exercise very specifically, and, and Eastern traditions have their own sort of philosophy intertwined with them as well. Um, but but all I'm saying here in terms of the exercise and movement really is, um, you know, I haven't gone into a tremendous amount from the book because I think it speaks for itself given all the information that I've given on the podcast is physical activity is so huge. You know, it's it's certainly one of the areas that I've really put a lot of money into or, or a lot of energy into, uh, a lot of my resources into, and I've found that. And it's it's when I start working with people who maybe weren't as physically active, you know, it's it's very rewarding to see that from people how much it gives them you know they start to feel more confident in the body they start to feel much better um, and it, it it feeds into their happiness their contentment um, one of the other areas then that that is discussed in the book is this idea of uh, mindfulness and stress reduction that is really a part of uh, the Okinawa culture the blue zones in particular where um Maybe in, in sort of Eastern-based um, cultures, you see a lot more uh, emphasis on like mindfulness practices. Like you can think of uh, meditative practices, uh, things that I've discussed, breathing techniques. I've, I've discussed that I have an episode on breathing as well. Um, you see this as a really important part of, of what they do, something that they do on a very regular basis. You know, it feeds back into that idea of, of, a, of a daily physical practice. Uh, that we that we found in the in the last point, um, I I think it's huge. You know, for for stress reduction is understanding how the thoughts that are coming up um, on a daily basis have to do with say like how physically active you are. If you're very low in physical activity, you kind of have all of this energy that's almost being ready to use, and it can lead to maybe the mind wandering um, and going off on a lot of things. You often hear when people are physically active mind quietens a little bit and I can certainly say that where I've had uh, training sessions that I've done or or periods of time where I've just been super super uh, involved in my physical practice and there is that sort of quieting down of the mind a, a sense of peace a sense of calm that comes to you um, and and through these different things uh, through which it, like mindfulness practices uh, stress management, like a lot of the quotes in the book of, of some of the people that they interviewed, it's very funny. They're kind of like, they they take this approach of, you know, don't stress about it. Uh, it's it's very, very funny when we hear that because, you know, when we're in the thick of it with stress, you know, it's so over-consuming, it's so overwhelming, our thoughts are racing, it's just everything is, you're, you're seeing red. And you have to be aware to some degree that you're kind of getting caught in something, if that makes sense. You're getting caught by the stress. You're 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 identifying with the stress. You're stuck in it, and that perspective of just being able to say like, "Hey, don't worry about it," seems very simple. But that's really what you're doing is you're sort of observing it and going, "Okay, it's there. It's 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 something that's that's with me right now, but it doesn't have to be something you identify with. You can take a step back from it, and I think that's where." meditative practices really give you that ability to distance yourself from those thoughts you know you often see it within a meditative practice where you are trying to focus on a mantra you're trying to focus in on your breath whatever it is you're trying to focus on something to make you aware of your racing thoughts you know you're you're sitting there in meditation 
And you're trying to think, okay, focus on my breath, breathing in, breathing out, and then your, your, your mind wanders. And it's the process of catching yourself, not necessarily how good you are doing the meditation. It's not like a perfect meditator suddenly has no thoughts. That's not the objective of meditation. The objective really is to catch yourself wandering as many times as you can, whether that's once or twice within 10 minutes or whether that's a thousand times within 10 minutes. It's really about becoming aware of how we we really have a, a poor ability to do that naturally. And for some of us, we're not even aware of it. You could say to someone who's very inexperienced with meditation to, to sit down and meditate and they would sit there and they'd go, oh, I'm not really thinking of anything. And it's almost as if that person needs it more because they're not even aware that their mind is racing. Uh, they're, they're, they're so enamored by those thoughts. They think they're focusing in on their breath. They're not really aware that their mind is racing uh, all over the place. So with, it's, it's what you find then when you start getting into a meditative practice is you actually feel as if you're getting worse. You feel as if you're making less progress because you're becoming more aware of the fact that your, your thoughts are tra trailing off. So when you really keep going through that process on a very regular basis, on a very consistent basis, you're getting a distance from all of those different things, from those thoughts, those feelings that, that, that take us over so much. Um, which, so I think it's, it's really a huge part of stress reduction uh, that you're seeing in these cultures, these blue zones where they have low levels of stress um, is, is really, uh, it's, it's, it's such a huge part. Um, another thing that, that kind of falls under this idea of, let's say, mindfulness and stress reduction is uh, finding flow in what you do. And this maybe comes back to the, um, the, the original quote that we sort of saw at the start that is uh, the happiness of always being busy. And I think this is like, this is really what, what, what they mean when they say being busy. Busy in the sense that you have so many things in your life that you are always, um, always in a flow with. You know, you're always in the moment. You're never distracted. You're busy in the sense that you have things that, are re that mean a lot to you um, and that you find yourself uh, in, in more of a flow. Um, one of the quotes that I've kind of pulled here from the book is uh, there's a book on flow. It's, it's called Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience by it, the, the author's name is Six Cent Millier. It's a very hard way to uh, name to pronounce. I'm obviously butchering it. Uh, but look up that book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. Um, and the, the name that I've attempted to pronounce terribly. Um, but basically it says that flow is the state in which people are so involved in activity, excuse me, that nothing else seems to matter. The experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at a great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. And th this, this to me, it's like there's so many things that I find myself in a flow in. And the more of those things that I have, not necessarily the better my life is, but the more fulfilling and rewarding my time spent uh, feels. You know, if, if, you're, if you're doing lots of things that are, you're dragging yourself through almost, you know, that's necessary in life sometimes. Sometimes we do have to drag ourselves through things that are potentially uncomfortable in order to find that flow in time. Um, but you really have to think like, what are the things that you just get lost in? You're just really, really involved in the moment. There's no distracting thoughts. You're just really, really present. 
um, that those sort of things are potentially what feed back to those ideas of you know what you're good at, what you love, uh, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. Um, all of those those intersections you can think of like where do you find flow in those different areas uh, where where are you lost in the activity that you're doing um, and then even look at it from the opposite perspective say to yourself well what are the things that I just I'm, I'm meeting such a hard uh, brick wall every time I go to do it and I've attempted it multiple times could you look at an alternate strategy could you look at a different way of approaching the topic um, could you change your mindset to it to sort of come at it from a different angle and then find your flow or is it potentially something that you should just pull yourself away from and um, can you even do that potentially and um, ca can you start to do that with a lot of the things in your life hopefully you can it's a it's something to consider for sure um, and this certainly deals with um Vygotsky's zone of proximal development i hopefully got that name right as well uh, this is something I've discussed on the podcast even before in some of my posts on social media as well. Uh, but you can imagine you've got that sort of uh, zone of things that arouse you enough um, or, or things that don't even uh, don't even tickle your fancy or don't even pique your interest. Um, and it's, it's never good to find yourself on that end of the spectrum. But that zone of proximal development really is when something is just as uh, enthralling as it needs to be to really find yourself in flow. Okay. Um, Another concept discussed in the book is uh, the concept of resilience, and it looks at it from very, very uh, different angles. And I think this comes back to where uh, mindfulness and stress reduction might be looked at in, in a more negative sense. Resilience is, uh, I think, a very positive thing for sure. Um, it's this idea of, like, the, one, of, one of the things that they quote here is uh, a Japanese saying, Nana Kurobi Yaoki, hopefully I've said that right as well, which is uh, fall seven times, rise eight. Um, and this ability to overcome challenges, to, to really maintain a positive outlook is uh, so huge in life. You know, we're, we're always going to come up against obstacles in life. Um, so, some of us come up against it early in life and realize that, okay, this is, this is what life is. And to, to, in some way, it can be a blessing that you're able to go through something and you're able to, to use it as something that doesn't define you use it as something that you can potentially get over that gives you a new perspective in life that changes you for the better it doesn't have to be something that changes you for the worst um, and I, i'm amazed myself it's very it's very hopefully it's not seen as very dismissive you know when, when someone goes through something that's very very hard to be able to say that like oh they didn't they didn't come out of it on the better side you know Things, things happen to people all the time and it takes it takes some people years to get over certain things but really this resilience to be able to bounce back from something is is huge to develop and I think it can be developed is the important thing really that I want to point on is uh, accepting the fact that you know things in life change we, we it's very easy for us to, to to consider everything in life as just being perfectly stagnant you know for for such a long period of time we might find ourselves in a certain job a certain role with certain people around us that we forget you know people move away and um, we we have friendships that we lose um, we have we have jobs that we potentially uh, get fired from or just we outgrow in some way so change is such a huge part of life and building a level of resilience to that change that happens in life is necessary you know it's it's really necessary to have or to live a more fulfilling life um accepting your finitude that you will one day die i know these are very bleak things to ponder and to consider but 
when you really consider these things that everything is changing, everything is in flow, everything is moving, you are more able to tackle things when they happen. It's just accepting. It's, it's maybe a very stoic outlook as well where you just kind of take something and say, okay, cool, these are the facts. These are the things that are in front of me. What do I do from here? Rather than getting caught up in it, you know what I mean? Um, and, and as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying hopefully to not be dismissive of people that have been through some very, very, very difficult things. Um, but, but I'm always amazed by, by the resiliency of human beings who are able to uh, take things in life that happen to them and still look for the positive going forward. Because that's really how they're going to get through, how they're going to live, how they're going to survive and how they're going to be content and happy going forward. Um, despite how draining, how, how difficult, how challenging something might be. Um, and this is this level of resilience is what you find uh, in these uh, this this particular blue zone where they focus on Okinawa um, and, and the people living by this kind of icky guy. Um, last point to, to really consider is this idea of social connections and community. Um, th this is a direct quote here. Basically, Okinawans live by the principle of Ikari B Kode, Chode. Um, it's a local expression that means treat everyone like a brother, even if you've never met them before. Um, th this is this is fascinating to me that 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 this is such an integral part of the culture. Um, because it's it's very easy for us in in a Western culture to feel kind of isolated and alone and away from and separate from people. Um, and it, th given that this is such a huge part of of them. Uh, living to, to later years they have such a massive social connection and sense of community and um, it's 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 very very interesting um, and, and and it feeds into this this more philosophical side of things where you are able to sort of look at your own things that you go through your own issues and look at other people and recognize and become aware of the fact that hey they're another person going through similar or potentially even more difficult struggles and they've come to this point in their life they're making decisions based on the things that have happened to them and you could have easily done um a lot of the things that they they have done you know and you suddenly expand that out into the seven odd billion people that we're at now at this point in the world it's it's really a a it's a, it's a it's a beautiful way of looking at things of 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 looking at reality and realizing that like hey we might be separate people or we might conceive ourselves as separate but we are we're a social network we are very similar and we're we, we have more similarities than we have differences um i i'm I, i'm touching on something here that is really like ethereal and, and out there and I, I want to tie it back into this idea of kind of social connections and community so maybe i'll do a future episode on some 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 of this work as well um, or this concept, but it, but it's, but it basically what I'm saying here is that the social bonds uh, that you build, the sense of community that you have, is is super super integral to your uh, to your longevity, to living a long and happy and fulfilling life. Um, they they have this concept as well, specifically in Okinawa, uh, of moai, m o a i. Uh, basically, it's an informal group of people with common interests who look out for one another. And um, you often find that people within this group, this uh, Moai, um, they they share finances in some way as well. They contribute a lot of the time. And what it means then is, if someone within the group is struggling potentially financially, you know, they go through a, an incident, an accident, 
um, they can lean on the social group for uh, resources, uh, you know, not just financial support, but help in other ways. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating when we think of like in, in Western culture, how when we as a community grow, we, you know, we buy houses, we try to maybe potentially buy houses as close as we can to family. But, you know, once you move out of the home, once you set up your own family, how really involved are grandparents and stuff like that? Some people do it really well. Some people really do have that strong sort of uh, familial connection, but that sort of communal feel as well uh, with one another, a, a dependency on your neighbor is is potentially not even there in a lot of different places. If we can feel very, very isolated uh, and, and what's that doing to us? What's that doing to us potentially in terms of our longevity is a, is a, a big question to ask. Um, so given, given that we've gone through a lot of that stuff, um, I, I want to leave with a great part of the book, which is, uh, 10 rules of Ikigai. Um, and hopefully this will give you an idea of thinking of what are the ways in which you can discuss, discover your Ikigai. And um, if you go back to the start and we consider that idea of like what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for and what you're good at finding your what is your mission your vocation your profession your passion really asking those sort of questions can lead you to your ikigai potentially but the 10 rules that they cover at the end of the book that book again is ikigai the japanese secret to a long and happy life by hector garcia and francis morales i'm just going to throw these out straight away uh, so one is stay active don't retire number two take it slow number three don't fill your stomach number four surround yourself with good friends Number five, get in shape for your next birthday. I think this is a funny one where it's like, it's the continual process of life. Like keep getting in shape for your next birthday and you will live a, a, a pretty long and happy life. Um, it's, a, it's a never ending process. Number six, smile. Number seven, reconnect with nature. Number eight, give thanks, be grateful. Um, number nine, live in the moment. And number 10, follow your ikigai. Um, great way to, 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 to really end to kind of consider those main things, you know, simple, simple rules to, to live by in some way. Um, so, so at this point, I'll certainly encourage you to go and read that book. Um, it is, uh, there's, there's loads that I haven't covered, but the, the main things that I really want to discuss here in terms of a, a broad look at this concept um, really feeds back into me, into some of the things that I'm trying to do with the people that I work with. You know, I, um, I came across this book a handful of years ago and only reread it maybe within the last year. Um, but it, like every time you kind of come to something like this that you really, really uh, connect with or, or really, really speaks to you, that really resonates with you. Um, it's always very interesting thinking and asking those questions of, you know, am I really doing my best in terms of my diet, my, my nutrition, um, the, the exercise and movement, the mindfulness, the stress reduction? Uh, they're, they're big areas that I have certainly found myself leaning towards over the years, maybe consciously or unconsciously. Um, and it's what I'm trying to do with the people that I work with is taking all the things that I feel I've done, that I found an interest in, uh, that I think are great for, for, for health, um, and integrating them in. And for me, that's where I want to go with this idea of the movement school is bringing some of these practices, uh, some of these practices for, for a long and happy, happy and healthy life. Obviously, it's very, very uh, weighted towards the movement side of things, but it's looking at things in terms of philosophy that will aid in terms of that idea of resilience and mindfulness and stress reduction that we also discussed. Um, and the social connections of community, it's a, it's a group. 
you know, you're going to have, you're going to meet new people. You're going to in, have a community of like-minded individuals that are equally out there, you know, seeking more. You know, I, I think that's a, a beautiful part of having a group of people that are very much focused in on one thing is you start to you start to realize that there are people who are kind of on the same wavelength, who are thinking the same things, and you feed off of that energy. You feed off of someone doing something a certain way and understanding why they're doing that and giving you the perspective of, oh, would that be useful for me or can I attain to that, you know, in a, in a, in a healthy way? Um, and that, you know, it in, in some way, that's what helps the group itself gain more. It, it creates a, 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 a spiraling energy that suddenly elevates everyone within the group when everyone is thinking along the same lines and, and giving each other help and, and everything like that. Um, so I think that's huge, and that's what I want to get, uh, certainly from the movement school. So I know I, I discussed this in the last episode, the idea that we were going to push it out a little bit, but I'm going to keep discussing it on the podcast to hopefully gain and gather people who are who are interested in it. Um, so certainly reach out to me if you've got any questions. Um, I think I have in my um, link in bio on my Instagram page, I have a link there if you want to join the, the wait list for it. Um, and that would be the best way to really just show me uh, how many people out there would be interested in something like this so we can get a good solid, solid group initially to discuss a lot of these topics. I'd certainly say then go back to one of my previous episodes. I'm not sure the exact number, but if you flick through, you're going to see an introduction to the movement school um, as one of the episodes where I discuss in a great amount of detail what exactly the school will be and what we'll discuss. Um, so yeah, so it's super excited to, to have that launch now in the next uh, few weeks, few months. Um, and certainly keep looking at my my stuff on Instagram. I'm, I'm covering a lot of that stuff there if you want a more visual look at some of the things that we'll be, we'll be diving into, okay? Um, so hopefully you got a lot from that episode. Uh, I, I found the book fantastic. I found a lot of these concepts. I'm just always fascinated when I come across something that like I agree with myself, you know, really resonates with me. And that's certainly what I got from this book and from this concept of Ikigai. Um, so I'll leave it there, folks. Thank you very, very much for listening, and I'll see you soon.